You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now present Your Life is Worth Living, hosted by Al Smith. Welcome to this week's edition of Your Life is Worth Living, Reflections from the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. For over 50 years, Archbishop Sheen captivated audiences on both radio and television. Millions tuned in each week to hear his messages of hope and encouragement. On this week's broadcast, we will share a few of those reflections with you, and so we'd encourage you to sit back and relax and enjoy one of the greatest communicators of our time, the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. Hello, Radio Maria family, and welcome to another edition of Your Life is Worth Living, heard here on Radio Maria Canada. I'm your host, Al Smith, and I want to thank you for joining me for uh, this opportunity to learn our faith and to grow in love of knowledge of the Church. And uh, so today's reflections will be on Our Lady and about women. Uh, Of course, Bishop Sheen was a great advocate for women, uh, the rights of women, and he did care about working moms and all those things that were the struggles of the day. Uh, for mothers, and uh, those struggles continue today. So uh, the two programs I'll share with you is one uh, entitled How Mothers Are Made, and uh, of course, (laughs) uh, they're made beautifully, and I'll let Bishop Jean uh, describe how mothers are made, and uh, then a beautiful uh, reflection entitled Women Who Do Not Fail. Uh, So both of these come from his television series, Life is Worth Living, from the 1950s, and so I know you'll enjoy both of these reflections. So uh, let us begin our hour by praying together the Hail Mary. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Our Lady, Seat of Wisdom, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please enjoy now these reflections from the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. Friends, there is a popular song or else a poem that tells how boys are made, girls are made, and what they're made of. Girls, it is said, are made of sugar and spice and everything nice. And boys, boys are made of snips and snails and puppy dogs' tails. And what are mothers made of? Tonight, if it pleases you, we will try and tell you how mothers are made. And we'll go a long way back because it took a long time to prepare for mothers. And we already wrote on our blackboard the plan that we will follow to save time and trouble of writing it. First of all, we will tell you the cosmic preparation for motherhood. 
And it takes three steps to prepare for motherhood. Now understand, these three steps do not make mothers. They only prepare for mothers. One, here this seems very high hat, but in the end it's very simple. Interiority of generations, that's one condition, prepare for a mother. Care of the young and the worth of the individual as well as the worth of the species. When these three things are prepared for, then something else has to be added to make a mother. And finally, we will say something about the ideal mother. The first condition for making a mother through the long evolution of the centuries is what is called interiority of generation. In the physical order, a flame lights a flame, a torch a torch. In the lower life, for example, the amoeba, there's a fission and a splitting. And the young life begins just simply by breaking off from the parent cell. And then when you get a little bit higher, there seems to be a closer relationship between the parent and the child. But there never could be a mother in this world unless we finally came to a point where there was an intimate, close, and vital relationship between the body of the mother and the body of the young. And it took centuries to prepare for this interior act of generation. The poor crabs, for example, that we know of, some of them go down to the sea and lay their eggs. They could never be mothers in the modern true sense of the word. Then in addition to that, nature had to prepare something else too. Namely the care of the young. Do we realize that this universe of ours is full of orphans? Namely the young that are begotten? You completely forgotten. For example, the trees bear fruit and the fruit lives an independent existence from the tree. Or you ascend a little bit higher. Perhaps nature is kind to butterflies because the butterflies never have to see how ugly is their young. At least at the beginning. And then there's the care of the young manifested a little bit higher in the hen. And any boy who ever had to go out and gather eggs in a barnyard or a crib as I did when I was a boy will never forget a cackling, setting hen. And you begin to know what an old hen is by trying to gather eggs. After all, you can't blame the hen. Never confines anything where she lays them. But there is such a very fine devotion for the young in the hen that our blessed Lord himself used. That is the supreme example of patriotism and love. He said, as the hen gathers her chickens under her wings, so he would gather us. How often would I have gathered you? And finally, the worth of the individual as well as the species. In the lower orders of evolution, there does not seem to be much care for individuals. They perish for the thousands. What matters is the species. But if mothers are ever to come into the world, there has to be a stamp of worth placed upon individuals. And that is why as you mount up the evolutionary scale, you will find that there are fewer that are being produced at a time 
in order that there can be individual care. I once heard Sid Caesar give an imitation of a fly, and he was buzzing around. He went down to the sink, found it clean, and so he went down to the sink in the restaurant where it was dirty, and he bumped into another fly named Helen, and said, hello, Helen, haven't seen you in about four weeks. How are you? Oh, fine. How are the children? Fine. How many do you have now? Four and a half million. Well, after these three conditions are fulfilled, we still do not have a mother. Just as I have to walk away now to have my angel operate, so too something else has to happen in the world before there can ever be a real mother. Up to this point, there's just a cosmic evolution. And there could never be a mother until love came into the world. And now follow through the three steps. How produce this interiority of generation in a mother? Not as it's done in an animal. In an animal, what is born and begotten is a result of cyclic responses, seasonal urges, sex, erotic impulses. But these are not enough to make a mother and to beget a life within. When you come to human beings, there must be no ravishing, no stealing away of the worth of the person. If a mother is to be made, what is begotten within must come from a free act of the will, in which a woman submits freely to the love of a man. This is the poet Browning put it. Our souls are one. Now let our bodies be one. We might almost say that the generation and interiority of it begins in the mind and in the soul with love. All love tends to an incarnation. When you look at generation this way, it is not to push from below. It is a gift from above. For in the great Hebraic tradition, we read a line where God speaks and says, Shall I that give generation to others myself be barren? Saith the Lord. There's generation in the Godhead. And that great generation descends and comes down to the mother. And the interiority of generation is so noble and so sublime that the mother can say to the young that is within, Take, eat, this is my body. This is my blood. But something else was needed to make a mother besides the inferiority of generation, and that is a care for the young. There's not enough in the animal kingdom to make a mother because all that you have in the animal kingdom is a care of the body. But in a child, 
is a soul. The father and mother cooperate to make the body. But God cooperates with them to make the soul. And hence, for a mother, there has to be not only the long care of the body, but the longer care of that young mind. It does not take long in the animal order, for example, to generate and to develop the brain of a monkey. Because the monkey brain does not have very much to do. But it takes a long time to develop the mind of a child. The inculcation of ideals. Virtue. Purity. Honesty. And patriotism. This is a new kind of care that one does not find in the lower part of the cosmos. And what a tremendous responsibility devolves upon the mother. For the child that is given to her is a so much clay. And she has to mold it in order that may be fashioned as a child of God. For when that child was born to her, there was a crown that was made in heaven. And woe to that mother. The crown is ever empty. But there's something else that is needed to make a mother. And that third factor is the worth not of an individual, but the worth of a person. In the animal order, you have individuals. In the human order, you have persons. The difference between an individual and a person is this, that individuals are replaceable. Persons are not. For example, you go to buy oranges at a store, and you say, no, this one is bad. Give me another. But you cannot say that about children. Child is a person. Unique incommunicable, irreplaceable. That is why there's sorrow, such sorrow in a mother when one is lost. It is a person, an immortal soul that is lost. That incidentally is why every mother gives to the child a name, dignity, uniqueness and apart. There is no greater refutation in the world of communism than a mother. Because communism says there are no persons. We're just individuals. We're like individual grapes. And as grapes have the life ground out of them for the sake of the wine of the communal state, so too they would destroy persons. But every mother in the world arises to proclaim, this child of mine is not an individual and may not be submerged in any collectivity of a state or a race or a class. This child is unique. He has a name. He is my son. That's how mothers are made. Love that begets a life within, 
care of the young, and the soul of the young, and the worth of the person that is born. Now there ought to be some great ideal mother, too, upon which all other mothers have been patterned. For a mother is too noble to be without an ideal. And there was such a mother once. Every mother generates because she submits to the love of a man. There was a mother once who conceived because she submitted to the love of God. One day out from the great white throne of light, there came an angel of light descended down over the plains of Esdraelon, passing by the daughters of the great kings of the east, and came to a woman kneeling in prayer and said, Hail, full of grace. These were not words. They were the word. And the word was made flesh. She, the mother, came like a living ciborium, bearing within herself the guest who was really the host of the world. This was the greatest love that the world ever knew. The love that came down into a woman and ended in an incarnation. And mothers, too, in their care of the young have an ideal, too. Animals care for the bodies of the young. Mothers care for the bodies and the souls of the young and the souls of the young come from God. And there was once a mother who cared for God himself. She cared first of all for his body. And she wrapped him in a swaddling band. She cared for his soul, his mind, for he was subject to her. What a lesson for children to realize that here was a child that was subject to the mother, but the child was the creator. There's not a mother in all the world who when she picks up the life that has been born of her, that does not look up to the heaven to thank love itself for prolonging itself and making the world young again. But here was a mother, a Madonna, who did not look up, but who looked down 
to heaven and found heaven in her arms. But then finally there was the worth of a person. And every earthly mother gives a child a name because that child is unique. And it was fitting too that this mother's child be given a name and the name was given by an angel. And his name was called Jesus. And why? What did it mean? It meant Savior because he would save men from their sins, not save them from economic insecurity, but save them from all the effects of psychosis and neuroses that trouble the world. Save them from their guilt. That was his name. An irreplaceable name. And of all the thoughts that one reads about mothers, one is struck particularly by a thought that is given to us by Bishop Oxenham in a work that he wrote on this mother of whom I'm speaking. Bishop Oxenham was talking about a statement of Whistler. You remember Whistler painted the famous picture of his mother. And on being complimented about the picture, Whistler said, you know how it is. One tries to make one's mummy just as nice as one can. Well, then, since here is a child who made his own mother, we can understand that he made her just as nice as he could. Just as nice as God could make a mother. And then when he became a babe, here, he climbed up her body as an ivory tower to kiss upon her lips a mystic rose. And to that mother we say, in the language of Mary Dixon Thayer, lovely lady dressed in blue. Teach me how to pray. God was just your little boy. Tell me what to say. Did you lift him up sometime? Gently on your knee? Did you sing to him the way mother does? Did you ever try telling him stories of the world? And oh, did he cry? You think he cares if I tell him things? Just little things that happen. And do angels' wings make a noise? Can he hear me if I speak low? Does he understand me now? Tell me. For you know. 
lovely lady dressed in blue. Teach me how to pray. God was just your little boy, and you know the way. God love you. Our sincere thanks to the Fulton J. Sheen Company, who has given us permission to share these broadcasts with you today. I invite you to make Bishop Sheen a part of your family audio and video collection. You can call them toll-free at one 866 or visit the official website for purchasing Catholic family videos and DVDs of Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen's recordings from the Catholic television series, Life is Worth Living. The web address is www.bishopsheen.com. You will find rare collections of Catholic family video recordings addressing a variety of topics such as morality, Mary the Mother of God, angels, Catholic Holy Days, and other faith-based subjects. So call toll-free today. 1-866-357-4336. Again, 1-866-357-4336. And on the web, www.bishopsheen.com. And on behalf of Bishop Sheen, God love you.
Listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program Your Life is Worth Living, hosted by Al Smith. Hello, Radio Maria family. That was Josh Groban and his rendition Ave Maria. And I thought I would share that uh, because we've been talking about uh, how mothers are made, and of course, we think of the Blessed Mother and how uh, God, in His wisdom, uh, got to make His own mother. Uh, I didn't get to make my mother. She was there before I got there. and uh, But thanking God, you know, that he created the world. Uh, and, of course, he had that privilege of making his own mother. And so, you know, you know that he made her the most beautiful and precious uh, creature uh, ever to be made, of course, uh, for mothers. And um, uh, what a great advantage. I wish I could have made my mother. <laughs> and I would have made her a little bit different, but... Uh, you know, a little bit more kind, I think, uh, maybe more generous in the cookie jar, but uh, you see my point. And so, of course, uh, Our Lady, Our Blessed Mother, is, uh, of course, a real blessing. Uh, we were given Our Lady at the foot of the cross when our Lord said, Woman, behold your son, son, behold your mother. Uh, at that point, we became children of Mary. Uh, we may be her millionth born, uh, but still, uh, she holds that title. She is the mother of all. And so let us uh, now enjoy another reflection by Bishop Sheen. Uh, this one's entitled, Women Who Do Not Fail. Uh, and it is true, when you look through history and scripture, uh, the women are very consistent. They don't fail. The men, uh, our track record isn't that great. <laughs> so, uh, But I think uh, Sheen is going to try to uh, make a point here by this reflection, and I think we'll all be better for it. So uh, please sit back and relax and enjoy this reflection entitled, Woman Who Do Not Fail from his uh, Emmy Award-winning television series, Your Life is Worth Living. So uh, please enjoy. Friends, since our subject this evening is women who do not fail, perhaps we are entitled to tell the oldest story in the world about women and against them. The story is about Adam after the fall of man 
He was out walking one day with his two boys, Cain and Abel, and they passed the wreck and the ruin of the once beautiful Garden of Paradise. Adam looked in rather wistfully, pulled the two boys to himself, and then said, Boys, that's where your mother ate us out of house and home. <laughs> then as the centuries went on, man found it rather difficult to be without a woman. G.K. Chesterton could hardly keep an engagement without his wife. One time he sent a telegram to her that read, I'm in Manchester, dear. Where ought I be? <laughs> the level of any civilization is always the level of its womanhood. And the reason is, when we know something, we always bring it down to our own level. That is why we have to explain things to children, by bringing it down uh, to the level of their minds. But when we love something, we always have to go out to meet it. For example, if we love music, we have to meet the demands of music. If we study a foreign language, we have to follow its laws. Even if we study ping pong, we have to meet its requirements, too. Now, inasmuch as woman is loved, it follows that the nobler a woman is, the nobler man will have to be to be deserving of that love. That is why the level of any civilization is always the level of its womanhood. And women who do not fail can be broken down into three different categories. Those that cover, first of all, the women who do not fail in the social, political, and economic order. Secondly, women who do not fail in the home. And thirdly, women who do not fail in their preservation of spiritual values for civilization. First of all, women who do not fail in the social, political, and economic order. That immediately brings up this question. Does professional life harden a woman? It is sometimes asserted that it does. This is not true. There's nothing in professional life to harden any woman. Does it happen, however, that women in professional life sometimes do become hard? Yes, but that is due to other factors. A woman becomes hard only when she loses an opportunity to manifest those specifically feminine qualities of sympathy and kindness and tenderness. Every woman in the world was made to be a mother, either physically or spiritually. And here we're not talking of physical motherhood. We're speaking of spiritual motherhood. A woman in professional life is happy when she has an occasion to be feminine. The man is the guardian of nature, but a woman is the custodian of life. And therefore, in whatever she does, she has to have some occasion to be kind and merciful to others. She cannot look at a limping dog 
She cannot look at a at a flower that is has a broken stem without her heart and her mind and her hands. Going out to these things as if to bear witness that she was appointed by God as the very guardian, the custodian of life. The woman who does not fail in professional life is the woman, therefore, who manifests this feminine quality of what we will call equity. There's a world of difference between law and equity. Law is concerned with rules, with exactness, with justice. Equity. There are not many more courts of equity. The world used to be full of courts of equity. Equity is concerned with the circumstances that escape law. With extenuating circumstances, excuses for action. Equity always finds some reason for not being too strict and too rigorous. And it used to be, as Henry Adams pointed out in that great work of his on Mont Saint-Michel, there used to be a reverence for all of the ladies of equity. He tells the story of the Cathedral of Chartres. And he pictures on one side of this great cathedral magnificent windows that were put up by one of the great families of France, the family of Blanche of Castile. And then on the other side of this cathedral were another set of windows that were put up by the family of Pierre Dreux. They almost seemed to be carrying on the civil war across the vault of that cathedral. And Henry Adams said, there on the main altar, there stood the statue of Our Lady of Equity, listening as it were to the disputes, but with mercy and kindness and tenderness, symbolized by the holding of a babe in her arms. She was reconciling the conflicting parties. And if a woman does not have an opportunity in her working hours between nine and five to manifest those feminine qualities of tenderness and meekness and gentleness, then she will have to find occasion afterwards, that is to say, from five o'clock on. Then she keeps normal. Then she keeps feminine. Then she keeps happy. I was thinking the other day why we have such a very happy office. I think the reason is that everybody who is there has an opportunity, though they're doing somewhat the same work that is done in every other great office in America, typing, mailing letters, receiving letters, and the like. They're happy because they, they know that everything they do is associated with helping, as we did last year, 63 million sick and orphans and aged and lepers throughout the world. It's a wonderful sensation to enter into any kind of work and to realize that you know that mankind is better simply because you made some contribution, even in a commercial way. Women of this kind are always happy. Here are the women who do not fail. And then there's the second type a woman who does not fail, and that is the mother. Here we speak of physical mother. The mother and the wife. Every mother is the bearer of God's gifts to man. 
She adds a new dimension to the love of husband and wife. She does most in the production of what is actually the mutual incarnation of the love of husband and wife, namely a child. And then there comes mothercraft, or the teaching of obedience to children. We hardly ever hear of obedience anymore in our modern world. And yet, obedience is the condition of wisdom. And mothers who do not fail to be mothers always teach their children wisdom through obedience. Now, how was that done? Well, take a scientist. A scientist, if he's ever to know nature, has to sit passively before it. He does not give nature its laws. He says to nature, here I am sitting before you. You teach me. I will learn from you. To just the extent that he is obedient, he is wise about the laws of nature. And then when he has the laws of nature in his own mind, then he can convert them into technical power into the progress of civilization. And so it is with a child. When a child is obedient, he learns wisdom. Not only the wisdom that comes from the experience of parents, but the wisdom that comes from the moral and religious training they give their children, but also the wisdom that comes from tradition. For the family is that which perpetuates the tradition. When the child has finally acquired that wisdom by obedience, then later on, he can use that wisdom for his own perfection and out of his own freedom, but he has to obey first. And the real mother who does not fail is in relationship to her child like a wheat field is in relationship to a grain of wheat. That grain of wheat is normal. It's sane. Why? Because it's rooted, fixed in tradition. It's in communion with the earth and communion with the sun and the stars and the rain. And if you take that grain of wheat out of that field before it is ripe, it requires an independence which is its death. And so it is with a child. When a child is uprooted from the wisdom and the tradition and the love and the obedience of a home, the child is like that grain of wheat that has been pulled up, unripe. And he begins to acquire an importance which actually does not have, because he's not yet ripe. He's not yet wise with obedience. And because there are so many children in our modern world that have been uprooted without mothers of that particular kind, they insist on speaking to their elders before they have learned. They are asked to speak on international and social problems before they've learned that great wisdom that comes from obedience and a knowledge of tradition. They command 
before they have learned to obey. The mother who does not fail. Setting certain limitations for her children, the limitations of love, finds the children happy. Just as a child is happy playing in a rock at sea when there's a wall around the sea. He has some roots. Mothers of this kind who teach the children this kind of obedience are the mothers who will raise the great citizens for a great America of tomorrow. And then there is the third. And they are the women who preserve the great spiritual values for civilization. It is rather difficult to tell precisely everyone in a complete way just what they do for the world. But there must be someone in the world who will preserve ideals. So that there will be always be ideals to which every man can look when he loves a woman. And they are those women who dedicate and consecrate themselves in virginal lives to the love of God. They are like soldiers. Who does most to preserve patriotism in a nation? It is not the politician who talks about the country. It is not the dramatist who writes about it. Those who do most to preserve the ideals of patriotism in a nation are the soldiers on battlefields who are prepared to die if need be in order to manifest to other citizens that other values are unnecessary that other values are unimportant compared to the great love of country. Now, should there not be women who will do for love what soldiers do for patriotism? Should there not be some women who will love divine love so deeply and so profoundly that they will sacrifice all lesser loves in order to preserve for a weak and sinful and possibly sex-minded world the real understanding of love. They keep it pure. We can readily understand why any young woman, for example, should love a human heart that decays. But it seems very hard for some to understand why anyone should love the divine heart. Everybody can understand why anyone should love the spark 
There are very few who understand why anyone should love the flame. Perhaps we could make it clear in, in an example. Here's a rose. This rose has its own father, its own mother, its own hopes and aspirations for the future. When there was rain, it had its own tears. When there was sunshine, it had its own smile. And out into the garden there came a hand and plucked up that rose and destroyed it as far as its rose environment was concerned. But there was no injustice done because the hand of man is above the rose and he may use it for his own purposes. So in a human family is a human rose. With his own real father and mother, brothers and sisters, hopes and aspirations for the future, own real laughter and own real tears. And from out high heaven there comes the hand of the heavenly gardener that reaches down to that young woman and plucks her up. And destroys her life as far as human environment is concerned. There's no injustice done. The hand of man is above the rose and the hand of God is above the soul. And he may solicit the human heart to a perfect love. But you ask, well, what favor and blessing ever accrues to the rose that is plucked? Well, this rose that is plucked is touched by human hands. It may even be pressed to human lips. It may even be privileged, too, to lay its crimson head alongside of the lady of love. Rose life is shortened, yes, but what a beautiful life that now begins to lead with man so you all can see it. And so this young human life that is plucked is, is put into the vase of consecration, service and love of God and refreshing waters of sanctifying grace are poured on it from day to day. It's, human life is shortened, yes, but what a beautiful life begins to lead with God so that all the world may know that here are lovers. Lovers with what Thompson has called a passionless passion, a wild tranquility, to be in love with God. These are the women who do not fail. And it is interesting, if you ever noticed it, that in the great crisis, the greatest crisis that ever faced the life of our blessed Lord, there were many instances of men failing, but there was not a single instance of a woman failing. Peter denied. Judas blistered his lips with a kiss. But as regards women, some women solaced him on the way to Calvary. A woman made her way into Pilate's courtroom to plead his case. A woman wiped his face on the road to Calvary and became known as Veronica, Veronikon, the true image. And then at the foot of the cross, there were three women. Their names were the same. Their names... Mary.
Mary Magdalene, Mary of Cleophas, Mary of Nazareth, the mother of the Savior. They are the three women we described. They symbolize the three. Mary Magdalene is the woman symbolizes those that takes hold of the tangled skeins of a seemingly wrecked and ruined life and weaves out of it the beautiful tapestry of saintliness and holiness and therefore the type of woman who goes into the political, economic and social order and regenerates the downtrodden and heals the wounds of those who are sick of heart. And then there was Mary of Cleophas, the mother of James. The mother who taught obedience to a son and obedience that was sought but he became obedient even to the wisdom that was the word. And then finally there was Mary the contemplative who left the lights and glamours of the world for the shades and shadows of the cross where saints are made. These are the women who do not fail. And we salute them, we toast them, not as the modern woman, once our superior, now our equal, but we toast them as the great women who never fail. The women who are closest to the cross on Good Friday, and first at the tomb on Easter morn. One of the greatest joys in life is service and love of the poor. Next week we shall talk on social problems, those who create them, those who have solved them, and those who really solve the problem of the poor. Bye now, and God love you. Our sincere thanks to the Fulton J. Sheen Company, who has given us permission to share these broadcasts with you today. I invite you to make Bishop Sheen a part of your family audio and video collection. You can call them toll-free at 1-866-357-4336 or visit the official website for purchasing Catholic family videos and DVDs of Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen's recordings from the Catholic television series, Life is Worth Living. The web address is www.bishopsheen.com. You will find rare collections of Catholic family video recordings addressing a variety of topics such as morality, Mary the Mother of God, angels, Catholic Holy Days, and other faith-based subjects. So call toll-free today. 1-866-357-4336. Again, 1-866-357-4336. And on the web, www.bishopsheen.com. And on behalf of Bishop Sheen, God love you. You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program... Your life is worth living. Hosted by Al Smith. Well, Radio Maria family, our hour has come to a close, and so I want to thank you for joining me. And uh, I will tell you, we will continue to learn our faith together uh, each week. So please bring a friend next time. And until that time, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord let his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord look upon you kindly and bring you peace. You have been listening to Your Life is Worth Living, hosted by Al Smith, here on Radio Maria Canada.